0: Good morning, and welcome to Lesson 5. You ought to be sitting on the edge of your seats by now as we're uh, in Judges. This is uh, well, I've, learned, I've had a lot of titles for this. My last one was What I Learned from Jail. And, uh, but actually, I, I have a confession to make. My, my friend Bill Mathers and I, and a number of the rest of you are punsters, and I remember sitting in an elective class with him upstairs, and I don't remember who the teacher was, but he, he, he gave us some line, and Bill and I instantly thought of the same pun at the same time. We looked at each other, and Bill said to me in his wisdom, I wasn't sure I was going there, he said, better not. <laughs> That's probably what ought to be at the top of my page for this message, because it presents me with all kinds of temptations. I've already changed the title. It was in your bulletin. I had strong woman, weak-kneed, wimpy man. That should be strong women, weak need, wimpy men. Um, or I had wonder woman and the wimp. Um <laughs> Or Sisera goes to jail. But I have to tell you, where I drew the line is at the word Barak. And I decided I am not going down that trail. (laughs) I'll probably mispronounce it now from here on out. I can't help myself. That's just the way it will go. There are some things that we need to know as we approach our text in in Judges chapter 4. One of them is, this is the most popular text in Judges uh, for scholarly research. And the reason is, it's because it seems like such fertile feminist soil. And so uh, it's very popular. People won't touch the rest of the book of Judges, uh, but they'll, they'll go here and they'll land on it. And I'll have a little bit more to say about that later. By the way, some of the scholars are wimps, too. When I read the commentaries and what people say about this text, I never saw so many sissies as, as those who try to tap dance their way around uh, jail, if I may say so. Um, notice, too, that this is a two-part account. It, it's, it's a very interesting thing that you have the prose historical account in Judges chapter 4. You have the poetic response to that in chapter 5. Now, it's very likely that chapter 5 is written before chapter 4 because chapter 5 is the words that are sung that day, the day of the victory, whereas I would assume the book was written a little later than that. It's interesting to me that there's more detail in chapter 5 than there is in chapter 4, and and it's my contention that chapter 5 is the key to the interpretation and application of, of chapter 4 of Judges. So I'm going to hold some of my punches uh, on, on this particular message until I get to, uh, to chapter 5. It would also be important for you to know that we are dealing with northern Israel at this point. That is, we are de- dealing with a territory that generally tends to be above or around the Sea of Galilee. Now, if you remember from chapter 1, there in the conquest of the land, uh, the Israelites, in general terms, even the, the Judahites, who were probably the most successful, they were taking the highlands, but they were not taking the plains. And the reason they were not taking the plains is because of the chariots. We'll see them again, those iron chariots were the, the, the big problem. We're gonna see 900 iron chariots today and we're gonna see them in the plain. That is when we read in, 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 uh, in Judges chapter one that Judah was not able to take the plain because of the iron chariots. They are gonna take the plain in spite of the iron chariots. It isn't Judah particularly that's in focus, but it's that part of, of the land that was never really taken And this is a critical area both for farming and for trade and communication because it's generally through the valleys. People don't generally tend to build freeways through mountains if they can help it. So this is the way in which uh, commerce and and, uh, transportation would tend to go. So I'm going to emphasize, as my title suggests, I'm going to emphasize jail. I, I know that probably some of you expected me to have a stick, as it were. And and here's Deborah over here, and I'm saying, down, down, down. Uh, and, and, you know, she's got to stay down. We don't want to give her too much elevation in this whole thing. The reality is I'm actually over on this side with jail. Because I think that we ought to say to her that she needs to come up. She needs to come up in the estimation of scholars. She needs to come up in the estimation of people. But everybody's tiptoeing around because she drove a tent peg through a guy's head. Right? At least he got the point. And and so on we go. Sorry. I'm not cured yet. I'm working on it. It's got to be a support group for folks like us. But they don't want to put us together. Okay. So the setting is given to us. In uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. This is after Ehud's death. You remember Ehud and the the violent death of Eglon that we talked about last week. And it says in verse 1 that Israel sins once again. That tells us we're still back. Israel's back in rhythm. They're still doing that same old thing. Here comes another cycle of judges. And it says that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, the reason I want to just stop there for a second is I don't know that they thought it was evil. The whole point of judges is every man is doing what's right in his own eyes. So they may have thought they were doing great, but God thought they weren't. They were doing evil in God's sight, and it's because of that that God sells Israel into the hands of Jabin. Probably is a good thing to say that Jabin is a dynastic name. It's like Pharaoh and Abimelech. In other words, it's a title. It's not the guy's personal name, sort of like president would be to us. So you'll find a Jabin earlier in in the book of Joshua Not the same one, but the same office, uh, at least as I understand it. And the commander of his army is this man, Sisera. Because of his, uh, his ability and because of those 900 chariots, they cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. Now, I'm not sure whether I want to make anything of it yet or not, but it seems to me that Israel's getting duller and duller. Maybe we should say dumb and dumber. Uh, It took eight years of oppression the first time, right? Before they cried out. Then it takes 18 years. Now it takes 20. You're thinking, how long do these guys have to suffer before they get the point? They need to cry out to God. 20 years here in our text. Now, what we really need to look at for a minute is the context and the background provided for us in chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. As I said to you, more detail is found in chapter 5 in the poetry than it is is found in chapter 4 in the prose. But look at what we find in chapter 5, beginning at verse 6. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted, and travelers went by roundabout ways. The peasantry ceased. They ceased in Israel. That is, some of your translations may say villages and whatever, Little small villages that were vulnerable to to, uh, plundering raids and attacks. You can imagine when a cruel oppressive army is there and they come in on some little village, they could just take whatever or whoever they wanted. So people did not want to be in small, uh, unprotected cities. So in effect, people have vanished. We use the term head for the hills. They did literally, and they didn't go down the freeways because you either would be stopped to pay toll, oh, I don't want to go down that trail, or you, you, you might be held up, depending on the state of, of the uh, uh, law at that point. Now, verse 8. New gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Not a shield or a spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. So Israel is being oppressed There is almost a state of anarchy that is taking place at this moment. And Israelites are not well armed. But they're going to go against 900 chariots on the plain. Now that should be an interesting event. So the scene has been set for us. And Israel now is said to cry out unto the Lord. Uh Meet Deborah and Barak, verses 4 through 10. You notice that Deborah is introduced first, and very often she is named first. And and that certainly has some uh, significance. But I think we need to be careful as well, uh, as we're dealing with Deborah, that we do not make more of her than she does. It seems to me she, by inspiration, wrote the song in chapter 5. What does she call herself? A mother in Israel and and she's she's really a shade tree prophet yes if you come right down to it when you think about it I mean look at she has her own tree they know her by the tree right so she's literally doing business outside under this palm tree that's called the the tree of Deborah she is conducting this between Ramah and Bethel now it's in the highlands or the, the hill country of Ephraim. C- could I say it's in the Tuleys? It's in the Tuleys. And the, you know what that means? We're out in the boondocks. <laughs> and, and, and the reason for that is what we read in chapter 5. And that is there's chaos going on. And at this stage, the people are being oppressed. And so they're not going to use the major highways. They're going to go to some out-of-the-way place, which is where Deborah has set up shop. Now, we know from chapter 20, I believe it is, in Judges, that the Ark of the Covenant is in Bethel. She's not at Bethel. She's between Bethel and Ramah, up in the hill country under a shade tree. Now, that also says to us there must be something pretty badly wrong with the, uh, pr- the priestly system and Israel's worship. Would you not agree? They, they've turned. They're serving other gods. So I would take it Bethel and the, and the ark and all of that is kind of being neglected there. But so is the priestly system. Here is a prophetess who is sort of uh, bootlegging, as it were, uh, a word from God, because the system is just not uh, doing its job. Now, I have to say that I go with the translations, New American Standard, Holman Study Bible, ESV, New King James, that says she was judging. That, by the way, literally is the word. She was judging Israel. I don't like the NIV or the Net Bible's leading. And the reason I don't is it seems pretty pretty apparent to me. She is not the leader of Israel. She is not the leader of Israel. Barak is, or will be. Uh, the problem in Israel is that there isn't a leader. She is judging. Now, in that classic sense of judging, she's certainly not judging in the sense that that um, uh, these other folks, uh, Ehud and other military uh, heroes are doing. She's not leading the charge uh, out against the Canaanites. She is pronouncing judgment. That is, she is is doing what the judges did, Uh, under Moses, as it was outlined uh, after Exodus 18, that, that people would come with disputes or they would come with issues that needed answering and she would give revelation based upon the law. Here's how the law said that your problem ought to be dealt with. So people were coming to her, in a sense, to get a word from the Lord. But it, it tells us then that somehow that word wasn't available in, in the way in which God had originally intended or provided it. So I don't think it's right to say she was leading Israel. I think she was judging in Israel. And I think it's also safe to say she doesn't aspire to leading either uh, by what she says of herself and by what she says to Barak. She doesn't aspire to move up and take charge. Well, now we meet Barak, and I call him the wimp, and, and I want to be uh, as gracious as I can to somebody who's weak-kneed like me. But, but you have to say, this is not the tower of courage and faith. Would you not agree with me? And, and it, we'll see Gideon. He's just a warm-up act for Gideon, who's coming soon. But he's not a great man of faith. I don't think that he's a coward in the military sense. And, and, and I think you have to say, when Deborah speaks to him, she speaks directly for the Lord. In other words, when you read her words, it is God speaking to her. She is speaking to him as a prophet, and she is commanding him, or I should say the Lord through her, is commanding him. You are to go to battle. You are to take 10,000 people. You are to go up on Mount Tabor, and, 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 and so on. He's given him the specifics, and he says, I will be with you, and I will give you the victory. Well, that's pretty clear. Now, you have to ask yourself the question, why is it that he's so intent on one woman? In other words, what's the difference between 10,000 and 10,000 plus one? Or to put it differently, what's the difference between 10,000 and 10,000 plus one mother in Israel? Not a lot. I don't think he's saying, man, one more sword, that's what's going to do it. That's going to make the difference. So I don't think he's saying, I need more military might, and she's a good fighter. I don't think that he's saying she's the one who's actually going to lead the army. I don't think she's leading the charge. All he says is, I won't go unless you go with me. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Well, Moses said it (laughs) to God. He said to God, in Exodus chapter 33, if you're not going, I'm not going. And I have to say, partly in Barak's in defense, it seems to me that that's really what he's saying. He's saying, I want to know God is with me in this venture. I'm willing to go. I'm willing to fight. I just want to know God is there, too. Here's the sad part. It relates somewhat to what we were talking about this morning. When we were talking about the greatness of our Lord, but also the intimacy and the unity that we have with him. And what you see in the New Testament is our Lord Jesus saying, I'll not only be with you, I will be in you. The sad thing to me is, hear this man Barak, who is going to be, he's not there yet, he is going to be one of those in the hall of faith. So he is on his way, but he is a man who has no confidence and no sense that God is with him. Is that not tragic to you? And so I want to be careful how I use the word wimp, although I kind of like the word. But I want to be careful how I use that because I don't think he's a coward per se. I think he's a man who just doesn't experience God. And that to me is tragic. And so it appears to me that in all of Israel, here is one woman that really has a relationship with God. And that's why people go to her is they want to hear what God says. And that's why he wants to go with her, is because he believes God is with him when she's with him. But that's sort of sad, at least as I see it. I would say Wonder Woman is coming, and, and, and by that I mean this. The hero or the heroine of this story is not Deborah. It's jail. And so when Deborah says, the glory will not go to you, The glory will go to a woman. She's not saying it'll come to me. She's saying there is a woman who is coming and the glory is going to her. I'm going to say that probably once or more in this message. The glory goes to jail, not to Deborah. And yet everybody keeps elevating Deborah as though the glory goes to her. It doesn't. She doesn't want it and the text doesn't give it. Okay. Okay. Uh, now we come to this... Uh, did I put... I think I put Mount Tabor next. And I think I'm going to see a... Yes! Isn't that beautiful? Now that's about 1,800 feet high. And and there is a um, sort of a monastery or something. Up, you can see a building up there. I had not personally uh, been there on that. But some have said that this is the Mount of Transfiguration. That's a matter of debate. And I don't really care too much about that. What I really wanted you to see is I wanted you to see this scene from Sisera's point of view and from the Israelites' point of view. Where did chariots do their best work? Oh, isn't that nice? If you had 900 chariots, you would say, Oh, this is going to be good, right? Going to be really good. And you note that, that uh, Barak and 10,000 troops, they were up on Mount Tabor. So, in a sense, all Sisera has to do in his mind is he just has to surround this sort of uh, ice cream cone-like mountain and just isolate them or pick them off when they come down. And remember what God said to him? In effect, he said, I'm going to lure Sisera here. And he's going to lure him by where? The river Kishon. So here again, you have this this theme about Israel and their poor weapons and whatever. And here are the the Canaanites now. I didn't mention, incidentally, these are not external people like the Moabites and, and the Ammonites, as we've seen elsewhere. These are internal Canaanites that should have been cast out and weren't. If I didn't say that now, then I'll say it now. So anyway, you have this scenario where it looks like the Israelites are at this horrible disadvantage. God pouring more water on the altar, so to speak, make the level of difficulty tougher and tougher. And remember, these guys are well-armed, and we read from chapter 5, the Israelites aren't. We go into 1 Samuel, and we discover in 1 Samuel, only, David, uh, only Jonathan and Saul had swords. Is that not what we read? We'll come to that in a minute. So, man, you're thinking, this is going to be too easy if you're Cicero. Okay, let's go back to the significant parenthesis, which is Heber in uh, verse 11. This seems to be just some uh, incidental parenthetical remark. One of the commentators, I think, younger remarks, and I think rightly so. We expect, as it were, kind of skilled writing when it comes to chapter 5. Poetry is a little harder work. But if you look carefully at the, at the construction of chapter 4, you would see that the author has done a very, very careful piece of work. He doesn't lack for material. He's not like a sophomore in college trying to fill out his page requirements for a term paper. I had, I had fellow students. I don't think I ever quite did this. I had one of my roommates. I swear to you. By the time he got through with his margins, it looked like a newspaper column, but he had the number of pages that were required. It was amazing. Well, he's not lacking for things to fill up space, so he's telling us for a reason. Now, if we think back to chapter 1, we know that we're talking about Moses' father-in-law, right? Uh, The Kenites, and they come along, remember, with the Israelites into the land. But we read in chapter 1 that the Kenites were going to go off by themselves and and sort of separate themselves. And and, uh, Heber is even worse. He separates himself from his own people and he enters into a covenant relationship with a Canaanite king. So he's sort of off in the fringes. And now he has this relationship with, with Jabin, the Canaanite king. I don't think that he has agreed to do war with Israel. I think he's a fence straddler. I think he's a guy who's trying to to, to to hedge all of his bets. So he wants to have a nice, safe relationship with Jabin, so Jabin leaves him alone, and he wants to have some kind of relationship with Israel. But he's just riding that fence. And this little incidental fact is just tossed in, and we're just you know we just naively pass it by. It's going to be the turning point in the story, isn't it? Uh, this this fellow Heber, or more accurately. His wife, Mrs. Heber, known to us as Jael. All right. So here comes Sisera's army in verses 12 through 16 for their defeat. Uh, Barak is sent to Mount Tabor. Sisera is lured there to the plain and to the Kishon River. Now, again, we, we, we need more facts, and those come to us uh, more from chapter 5 than they do from chapter 8. It simply says to us, you <clears throat> know, excuse me, in our text, somebody probably better bail me out here with some water. <clears throat> Sisera, thank you, is, is uh, routed or confused, but we don't know. How does that happen? What happens? And then it says that many died by the sword. Whose swords? (laughs) Chapter 5 says there are no swords. You know, we don't have the armament. So how did that happen? Try this on for size. When you look at Judges chapter 5, and you look at verses 20 through 22, the stars fought from heaven, from their courses they fought Sisera, Thanks, man. (laughs) Maybe. The stars are are entering the battle. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. Oh, my soul, march on with strength. Then the horse's hoofs beat from dashing and so on. The steeds. Some kind of confusion, therefore, has come about. You know, and you look at I mean these horses and chariots, and they literally were like people mowers. You know, you're, you're literally using those to mow down the, the enemy as they seek to retreat. You're just mowing over them. Horses, chariots, you're just mowing them down. But what happens if those horses go into their own kind of stampede and you lose control of the horses? What happens when God sends from the heavens... A huge downpour of rain, and now a, a, a little creek that's kind of like a wash overfills and floods out on that plain. Now your chariots are stuck in the mud, your horses are in a panic, and, and there's more, I think, that we can read. But just remember, in Exodus 23, God said, I will send confusion. That's what what's happening here. I will send confusion on your enemies. First Samuel chapter 10 7 verse 10, at Mizpah, God sends confusion and the Philistines are routed and killed by the sword. But in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 19 through 22, that's the story of how the Philistines have the technology to make iron weapons and the Israelites don't. So the Israelites even have to bring their their plows and, and their farm implements to the Philistines to have them sharpened because they don't have the technology and they won't be allowed the tools to make their own, their own weapons. But when we get to 1 Samuel chapter um, uh, 14 and you look at the account there, What you see, remember this is the account where Saul's over, he's under a tree too, but he's shaking in his boots and he's kind of fearful about what to do. And Jonathan says to his sword bearer, hey listen, let's go up and get us some Philistines. And they climb up that cliff, remember? And and, and Saul is kind of watching from afar and all of a sudden it says there is, God is causing confusion and what happens with swords? He causes confusion so that the Philistines turn on each other with their swords. And so I can't liberal scholars, they've got to get a life. You know, they go to chapter four and they say, "Wow, look at these people. They're killed by the sword. Oops, look at chapter five. They don't have any weapons. Oh, what will we do? Well, we'll throw one or the other of the texts away." God's not troubled by that. They were killed by the sword. It didn't say they were killed by Israelite swords, did it? God caused confusion. And so all the blood that was shed was shed by swords, but either they did it themselves or they dropped them while they were running and the Israelites picked them up and finished them off. Is that so hard to get? It, it, It is not for me, especially when I look at other texts that tell me precisely what's taking place. So here you have this, this uh, defeat. And, and the humor to me is, now, they're, 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 uh, uh, um, uh, Barak chases them all the way back to Sisera's home. Now, why do you suppose he did that? Because he's looking for Sisera, right? Sisera must have, in Barak's mind, he must have run home to Mama or somebody and, and, and so he's on his way. You follow him all the way back, and poor old Beric, he realizes he's not there. That's where our story stops. And now we pick up that next account, and it's back with Heber, or Mrs. Heber, jail. Because of that covenant relationship that Javen had created with Heber, There was a sense of protection, and when Cicero knew he was in trouble, by the way, do you notice he fled from his chariot? I'm not sure what all happened, but his chariot was no longer his safety vehicle. He leaves that baby and runs. So here he is huffing and puffing, and he comes by Mrs. Heber's house. Uh, Not really house. They're nomads. It's a tent, as you well know. And, and so he comes by her tent, and she comes out to greet him. And she welcomes him in, and she offers him not just water, but nice warm milk. I, I almost wonder if she was sitting there as he was under his covers, his little blankie, and, and, and if she wasn't saying, lullaby. <laughs> Don't you you just wonder how that went down? But anyway, she says to him, you know, I'm going to take care of you. Don't worry. And here's a man who puts all of his trust in this woman to protect him. Don't let anybody in the door, he says. Don't let anybody in. Tell him I'm not here. This boy is really brave now. And and so she waits till the opportune moment. Wham! She drives the tent peg through his head and uh, it's all over. Except for the fact that um, finally... Uh, Barak comes along, and, and I think you have to say he comes with his troops because he's now going to hunt down Sisera and have the glory of defeating the captain of the army that's been already defeated. So here he comes on the scene, and, and she comes out now. Jail comes out to greet him, and she says, um, I think you've got something in here you might want to take a look at. And there he is, tent pegged through his head, nailed, as it were, to the floor. So, what are we supposed to get from this? Well, I I better finish the story. Verses 23 and 24. Notice that it says Jabin is subdued. Verse 23. The death of all of those troops is not the end of Jabin. It's a major blow. But it goes on to tell us in verse 24 that Jabin is gradually destroyed. You know what I like about that? It's exactly what God said was to happen. Is it not? God said, I'm not going to subdue the Canaanites quickly. I'm not going to subdue the the Canaanites immediately. I'm going to subdue them gradually. And what happened with the Israelites is they fizzled out. In this instance, they finally got it right. They won a decisive military victory. Rather than everybody going home and calling it good, they pressed it until finally Jabin was destroyed. Not just defeated, Destroyed. That's what God had for His people to do. All right, let's talk about some things uh, by way of conclusion. Notice I, I left conclusion there, and I could just fill in anything I want. That's because I knew I was going to be all over the map, and I could modify things all I wanted. A. Just wait till chapter five. <laughs> We're going to see a lot of the interpretation and application of this coming in chapter 5. And and in my opinion, chapter 5 tends to have a lot of corporate emphasis. That is, on the broad and not just the individual. If I do anything, I'll focus on the individual element uh, today. I'm going to talk a little bit about the whole issue of the role of women and feminism but uh, here's what I want to say. I thought about this, and it seems to me that our two persons, uh, Barak and Sisera, set for us the boundaries, perhaps within which we need to keep. It seems to me that Barak placed too much emphasis on the ministry of a woman. He was too dependent on it, was he not? I don't think you can say that that was a good thing. He was too dependent on and he, he placed too much weight, as it were, on the presence of a woman, namely Deborah, to be there. I don't think that was wise. Because God, you know, as, as, what was it, Jonathan said when he went to war, God can give us the victory whether it's with many or with few. One person isn't going to change that altogether. Too much emphasis. <laughs> but Sisera gives us the other side. He had too little appreciation for women. I mean, here he thinks, you know, oh, she's the little woman. Her job here is to open up the tent, give me my blankie and a bottle of milk, and I'm off. <laughs> he should have realized that women have a more significant role than he thought. Well, he probably didn't have much time to think about it, but he put too little emphasis. He appreciated women too little, and he did not see what God could do through a woman, and this woman is the hero of our story. So in between those two boundaries, it seems to me, is where we need to fall. Not uh, overestimate the role that women ought to have in leadership and certainly not underestimate God's ability to use them. Now, I've got to pick on the feminists a little bit in our text. Um, They only are interested in this text. That, That just irritates me. Everybody ducks the book of Judges. But all of a sudden, chapters 4 and 5 are like the promised land. And they just have to hasten here, and there's only one reason. And that's because it's fertile feminist soil. And like I can say, there's something wrong with that, folks. If you can't deal with Ahud and Eglon in chapter 3, then don't mess with Deborah in chapter 4. I just don't think it's fair. Take the book and take the story in the context of the book. Don't rip it out of its context. But there's another kind of duplicity that I thought about, and it's this. In 1 Corinthians chapters 11 through 14, Paul has very specific instructions about the role of women, does he not? And he is crystal clear on this thing. He says this teaching is general teaching. It is universal teaching. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. I'm going to send Timothy to you, and he's going to teach you not only what I teach, but what I practice everywhere in every church. Is there anything more plain than that? Universal truth. Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. And if anyone would be contentious with this, let him know we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Is that universal or, 1 Corinthians 14, 33, B, as in all the churches. let the women keep silent. It's universal, folks. And yet, what do the feminists do with it? I'm saying feminists, male and female. But what do they do with it? All oh, Corinth was a very special place. And, and so Paul had to deal with the women of Corinth in some unique and unusual way. But it certainly doesn't apply to us. That's not fair, folks. It's not fair because Paul says it's universal. Now, when we come to Judges, when it's clear that the book of Judges is not teaching us a pattern for universal conduct. Everybody wants to have their little boy grow up and be Samson. Or Ehud, or <laughs> Come on, folks. This is a pathetic time in Israel's history. Every man does what's right in their own eyes. This is not a model for life. This is to show you how bad it gets when God's model is forsaken. And yet they run to this text and they say, here's the text that tells us how women ought to work everywhere they are. Hogwash. And it just, it just, it's so hypocritical it makes me mad. I guess you can see that. All right. I'm going to say it again. I told you I would. Jail is the hero. Jail is the heroine of this story, not Deborah. Is that not true? Am, am I stretching this? She's the one who is hailed. That's what Deborah said. Someone else gets the glory. Chapter 5 Glory, as it were, to jail. She's the hero. Why is it people are so uneasy about her? Everybody tap dances around jail. You know, it's as though jail's house, tent, pardon me, is supposed to have embroidered on the walls be kind to Canaanites. Canaanites. Folks, God said in Exodus 23, I think verse 32, make no covenant with Canaanites. What are we told about Heber? Heber had a peace treaty with the Canaanites. It's pathetic. I, I, you know, Heber is not here to defend himself. But I've got to tell you, he's another wimp. He's another wimp. He's not willing to take a stand for Israel. He's not willing to take a stand with God. And so he just tries to straddle the fence and keep everybody happy. Well, I'm for jail, uh, as you can see. And it seems to me when you look at the text and it says for 20 years they harshly and cruelly oppressed the Israelites. What kind of things does that bring to your mind? Multiply that by five or ten and you're getting close. Do you think this man didn't deserve a tenth peg through the head? Well, okay, do you want lethal injection for the guy? I I don't know. What, What do we want that this guy doesn't deserve? if he rips open pregnant women, if he does all the horrible things that, that, that guys like this did, what's so bad about him getting a tent peg through the head? I mean, look at Ehud. It wasn't exactly glorious either. The fact is, this Canaanite deserved to die. All Canaanites were supposed to die. And now, all of a sudden, liberal scholarships wringing in his hands and a bunch of conservatives too, like, oh my, what do we do? Well, let it stand for itself. Jael is a hero, and she did what was right. Now, let me suggest how that happens. In my mind, Jael is like Abigail in First Samuel chapter 25. Remember Abigail married to Nabal, that fool? That's what his name meant. She said that's what it meant, too. Here he was. I think Nabal was trying to straddle the fence, too. Remember when David asks for a gift for his men? His men have been hiding out in the hills, and they haven't bothered his sheep. They have protected the shepherds and the flocks. He asked for a gift, and what does Nabal say? I'm not giving that guy anything. And then he says, who is David, and who is the son of Jesse? In effect, he's saying he's just a rebel who wants the throne. Well, isn't it interesting that as long as David and his men are out protecting his flocks, he hasn't been whistling for Saul? He likes, he likes David close by, if it isn't too close, and doesn't cost him anything. So he's trying to keep, in, as it were, close proximity with David, and he's trying to keep close proximity with Saul, and it's going to cost him. And his wife, Abigail, declared his allegiance for it. Did Abigail do what Nabal wanted? No way. Would he have given her permission, if she had asked it, to go take that gift to David? No way. But what she did was to put herself at risk, put her husband's interests above her own, and do that which was right. That, in my mind, is true submission. True submission is not doing what every jerk tells you to do. It's obeying God first and doing what is right and subordinating your interests to the interests of others. I think that's exactly what jail does. Now, think about what would have happened if Heber had been home. <laughs> you ever think about that? What if Heber had been home having his, having his afternoon coffee and, and here comes Sisera up to the tent? you got a decision to make, right? Either you're going to hide and abet the enemy, which is not really a too bright a thing to do when you're going against Israel and her God, or you're going to stand against the enemy. I don't think... He had the wherewithal to make that decision. But I'll tell you what, she made it for him, didn't she? I mean, let's face it. I don't think that Heber is going to be sending a, a delegation off to, to uh, Jabin and saying, mm, I'm really sorry, we've had a little diplomatic mess up here. Uh, somehow my communication to my wife didn't work out. No, it's over. It's over. She has declared... Uh, Much like Rahab, she has declared her faith and her allegiance to the people of God. And she has taken her stand. Look, folks, does she know everything that's happening out there uh, in terms of the other troops? I don't think she does. But she takes in her hands what God has given to her and uses it. I want to say one more thing about this that that just strikes me as sort of funny. If there can be any humor in this. and that is that. I've been thinking about, here's this woman, and she's, here she is a nomad. So you're picking up that tent, you're moving around all the time, you're not living in a village because Scripture says that wasn't going on, and nomads didn't do it anyway. So here you are, and, and, and it seems fairly well accepted that in that culture, it was the women who pitched the tents. So can you see, I see this woman, and, and, and by the way, I don't see Deborah as Miss California. I, 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 you know, she's a mother in Israel. So she, who knows how old she was and what all of that? So get that out of your minds. But here's here's jail. I think she has calloused hands. I mean, what do you get for driving tent pegs all day long? You know, and, and here she is it, it, there in her house, keeping house, and saying to herself, "Man, what an insignificant role I have in life." But all those years she was driving tent pegs. She's just building up for the big one, isn't she? She's just, it's just rehearsal. It's like the Israelites in Egypt. They're just getting calisthenics. And so here she is. God's prepping her for all of this. And I guess what I'm saying is, is this. It, it, to say it in feminine terms, but it works in masculine terms too. I think, I think in our culture, everybody's looking at the prophetess and they're saying, Oh, if I could only be a prophetess. You know, I just want to be so important, spiritual, all that stuff. And and, and they think, here I am, just a, just a meager housewife taking care of kids, changing dirty diapers, you know, whatever it is, and, and, and whatever. But all of that was God's dress rehearsal for the big one. She is in her tent doing what women did in their tents. And it was in that context that God gave Israel the victory. And what I'm saying to you folks is this. It seems to me it sounds like 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says, be content in whatever state you are. Don't don't worry about elevating yourself to some higher level of of whatever. Be what you are. I commend Deborah for being what she was. She was a prophetess. And so it was her job to say to Barak, God said this. That was her job. But Jail's job was to be there and take care of her house and drive tent pegs. And she did it. And this was the Olympics of tent peg driving. And she got a 10. That to me is saying, we need to be God's people where we are. She had made her choice, and that was, I will trust God. Now, let me say one more thing, and then I'll be quiet. There may be a fence rider here today. I think many of us are fence riders in reality. We want to mend our fences in, in the sense that we keep kind of good relationships with the world and, and, and all of that, and, and yet we want to have our relationships with Christians, and, and so we, we want to just kind of have a coexistence that goes on. This whole book condemns that. This book says you better decide which side you're on. And, and Jesus said to his disciples, the world's going to hate you because it hated me. We've got to make a decision about where we stand. And and Heber, even though he's not there, he's teaching us a lesson. And that is, you cannot ride the fence. And I want to tell you, when it comes to your eternal destiny, you cannot ride the fence there. You choose, as Joshua said in the end of his book, you choose this day whom you will serve. No fence riders in heaven, folks. They're all in hell. Make your decision. Whom do you trust? It's only Jesus that you can trust and his work on Calvary. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for Jael and for her faithfulness. Thank you for the way that you used her. Thank you for Deborah as well and her ministry. And thank you that eventually, at least, Barak became a man of faith. May you help us to be the people we ought to be. May you use us in whatever circumstance you have placed us because we have chosen to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.